0: Hello, welcome to today's episode of the Clinical Care Options podcast series, a bold panoramic grasp of tardive dyskinesia. I'm Dr. Robert Cotez, associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Emory University School of Medicine. With me today to discuss vesicular monoamine transporter 2 or VMAT2 inhibitors for the use in patients with TDE is Dr. Jonathan Meyer, voluntary clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at University of California, San Diego, and the psychopharmacology consultant for various state hospitals and first episode psychosis programs. In addition to discussing the mechanism of action and rationale for VMAT2 inhibitors in TD management, we hope to provide you with some clinical considerations for individualizing treatment. So Dr. Meyer, let's go ahead and get started. Thanks for having me, Rob. All right, terrific. So my first question for you, is when you see someone with tardive dyskinesia, tell us a little bit about your general approach to working with these patients. In
1: an ideal world, we try to minimize the risk of TD, and the most evidence-based way to do this is to use a second-generation antipsychotic when we need to use an antipsychotic. The best data we have is from a meta-analysis which shows the rates of TD in people just on second-generation agents is 7.2% whereas about fourfold higher for those on first generations. So that's number one. Sometimes we need to use first generations, but we prefer to try to minimize the exposure unless necessary and, of course, always use the lowest dose. Once I see somebody who I think has TD, the most important aspect is making sure it really is tardive dyskinesia. We often see other movement disorders in our psychiatric patients, some of which are D2-related, such as Parkinsonism, Others can be related to mood stabilizer treatment, such as exposure to lithium or valproate-inducing tremor. The hallmark of TD is that the movements are irregular. They are not rhythmic. It is possible to have TD and Parkinsonism or another tremor at the same time, but it's really important to kind of distinguish those to make sure you're treating what you are treating. And I think really the big take-home message, Rob, that we've been trying to educate clinicians about over the last few years is that anticholinergic medications do not work for tardive dyskinesia. They are very effective for Parkinsonism, but they do not work for tardive dyskinesia and they may actually make it worse.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Do you ever see any utility if you're not really sure what the movements are or if they appear atypical? Is there any rationale for even just trying an anticholinergic medicine and seeing what happens?
1: Well, there's a couple of thoughts there. For one thing, we're really trying to avoid giving anyone anticholinergics these days because of the cognitive effects. So that, that's just an overall statement that those are medicines of the past, which we're trying to phase out. That being said, if you're really not sure, a short-term trial may be helpful. If it really is Parkinsonism, though, the preferred treatment is either dose reduction or use of a non-anticholinergic, such as a amantadine, which does not cause cognitive impairment. But that can be helpful if you're really unsure. But again, look at the movements, and the hallmark of TD is that they are irregular and they are not rhythmic.
0: Okay, great points. Can you take us through a little bit some of the other risk factors for tardive dyskinesia?
1: Number one, uh, aside from the Generation of the antipsychotic, I mean, first generation's fourfold higher risk than second generation's, is age. Older age, which of course is always variably defined depending on the age of the speaker, but certainly as people get to be 60 and above, has approximately fivefold higher rates of tardive dyskinesia. That's number one by far in a way. Other relative risk factors include female gender and having a mood disorder, but older age is really the biggest one. And that's one to be sensitive to. It's not that we deprive an older individual of, for example, an adjunctive atypical for their treatment-resistant major depression, but we really want to make sure we perform an adequate informed consent so they've heard the term tardive dyskinesia, they understand what it means, and most importantly, that they will contact you if they see anything during treatment which they think might be a movement disorder.
0: You know, I think one of the reasons the stakes are so high in this conversation is because of the increasing use of atypical antipsychotics across the board. Like you mentioned, major depressive disorder, bipolar depression, the list goes on and on. Is there anything in the literature that suggests that people with diagnosis that is not schizophrenia may be more susceptible to the risk of tardive dyskinesia?
1: As I said, one of the relative risk factors in the literature is having a mood disorder. Now, we're not sure with newer meta-analyses that that always pans out, but I think it's certainly something to be sensitive to that regardless of the diagnosis, patients who are exposed to any form of D2 direct modulation may be at risk for tardive dyskinesia.
0: Okay. And for the clinicians out there, uh, can you talk a little bit about how we utilize a measurement-based care approach for people with TD?
1: Well, for one thing, you want to assess it using a standardized rating scale. Most people use the AIMS. Even if you're doing things via telepsychiatry, you can do a very good AIMS examination. You can certainly see the head and neck. If you have them sit back from the camera, you can see the rest of the body. You can have them do provocative maneuvers. Quantify what you're seeing as best you can. If you're really not sure, then you could see them again a week or two later. TD is typically irreversible and stable. You can get a better sense of what's going on. If you're having difficulty and it's possible, you always bring them in the office. And then once you've made the diagnosis of tardive dyskinesia, you know, the new APA guidelines for the treatment of schizophrenia in adults talk about the use of the VMAT2 inhibitors. And I think really one point, Rob, and many clinicians may not know this, is that in the clinical trials, those VMAT2 inhibitors were given to people with severe mental illnesses and the proportion of schizophrenia in the pivotal trials of the two FDA-approved agents for TD ranged from 58 to 68%. You can treat TD without having to change the underlying psychotropic regimen.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about how VMAT2 inhibitors work? Like, What's their mechanism of action?
1: So we have figured out how these agents work and it's a presynaptic mechanism. What we're doing is blocking this transporter called VMAT2 vesicular monoamine transporter type 2 which on the presynaptic side of the neuron is responsible for putting neurotransmitter into that vesicle. It's a little pump that sticks things into the vesicle like dopamine. If we block that in a selective manner, we are reducing the presynaptic release of dopamine and other monoamines. And we do this in, fortunately, a controlled way that allows reduction of the postsynaptic dopamine signal, which we see as less dyskinesia symptoms. It's not disease-modifying, it is symptomatic relief, but for many people that's exactly what they need because TD is not just a movement disorder, it's a functional disorder. People are often embarrassed about their symptoms. And especially when the symptoms are in the head and neck, they are clearly noticeable when folks go out in the
0: community. And you mentioned, I think, an important point that the VMAT2 inhibitors are not disease modifying. It's my understanding that once someone is on a VMAT2 inhibitor, most likely they'll need to continue that medicine in the long term. Is that correct?
1: We have long-term studies from the two FDA-approved agents, valbenazine and deutetrabenazine, which show that. As long as people stay on their VMAT-2, they have symptomatic improvement, but when they stop it, their TD severity seems to go back to baseline. There might be instances where literally the AIM score goes down to zero during a VMAT-2 inhibitor treatment. The patient wants to stop it. I usually say that's fine. Most likely, their symptoms will will come back. If they don't, they were lucky, and they spontaneously remitted, but that wasn't due to the VMAT-2 inhibitor per se it was likely due to the fact that they are no longer on an antipsychotic and they just happen to spontaneously remit during VMAT2 inhibitor treatment.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how quickly we would expect a VMAT2 inhibitor to show a benefit for someone with TD?
1: Yeah, so this gets a little bit into the differences in the titration between the two approved VMAT2 inhibitors. Valbenazine has a relatively shorter titration. You start in the first week on 40 milligrams, and unless they're on a strong 2D6 or 3A4 inhibitor, you go up to 80, which is the maximum dose at the end of the first week. So you'll tend to see improvement within the first couple of weeks, although more improvement will happen as they stay on it, as you see in the short-term six-week trials, and even in some of the open-label extensions. tetrabenazine requires a bit more titration. If you look at the long-term studies of tetrabenazine. Most people end up on doses around 39 milligrams on average. And because the starting dose is 6 milligrams BID, you have to titrate to that dose, and the package insert recommends going by 6 milligram increments per week. So it may take a bit of time to get to the dose where we see a response. In their fixed-dose trials, that was a minimum of 24, which is 12 milligrams twice a day. But I really encourage people to pursue the titration at least to 36 and perhaps higher. And really, the big differences between these two agents really do come down to generally kinetics. Uh, The valbenazine is a a once-a-day drug with a somewhat shorter titration. As of now, tetrabenazine is a BID drug with a bit longer titration. But I think the idea is you want to know how to use both. You may only have access to one or the other for insurance or healthcare reasons. They're both effective. Reduce AIM scores significantly. And most importantly, both were studied in people with severe mental illness. And you may have a patient who says, well, they tried drug A and I didn't like it for whatever reason. Fine. Now you have drug B, which you can try, and vice versa. So knowing how to use both options, we think, is really important, although there are some kinetic differences, and patients or the providers, meaning you, may prefer a shorter titration versus a longer titration, something like that.
0: Now, one of those other drugs that some insurance companies would have a clinician try before going to either valbenazine or dutetrabenazine would be tetrabenazine. Can you talk a little bit about tetrabenazine and the tolerability profile and how that differs from valbenazine and dutetrabenazine?
1: So tetrabenazine really is the parent compound for the development of either valbenazine or dutetrabenazine. It was synthesized in the mid-50s. Its only FDA approval in the U.S. is for the movements associated with Huntington's disease. There have not been really a lot of double-blind placebo-controlled trials with tetrabenazine. So there's a couple of issues. One thing, we don't really know what the effect size is for when you treat TD. We have some sense from open-label case series that it probably does work, hence the reason we developed valbenazine or do tetrabenazine, but I can't tell people the extent to which it does work. Also because of its kinetic disadvantages, it tends to be a BID or even a TID drug. And that often is really difficult for patients to be able to stick with. And so you have a couple of reasons why we don't really favor the use of it. It might work in some people. We have case series which report that, but for kinetic reasons, it becomes difficult to manage. And also because of the dosing and the rapid absorption Uh, We see a different side effect profile than we might see with more kinetically favorable modifications of that in the form of valbenazine and dutetrabenazine. The hard part, again, is the absence of double-blind placebo-controlled trials means I'm trying to infer the adverse effect profile of tetrabenazine from studies with Huntington's disease patients, which really is a very different kind of group. In that group, we do see a fairly high rates of certain types of adverse effects, but it's hard to extrapolate that to the TD patient.
0: Okay, got it. So people wonder about the tolerability profile of the VMAT2 inhibitors. What were the completion rates of the VMAT2 inhibitors compared to placebo? Yeah, it's a great way that you phrased the question because
1: I think that speaks more than anything to the tolerability. Yes, both agents have some adverse effects, and I'll, I'll highlight a couple of them, but if you look at the tetrabenazine trials, the completion rates on adjunctive placebo were around 90%, and for tetrabenazine, almost exactly the same, <laughs> almost exactly the same, around 89.5%. For valbenazine, the completion rates in their two pivotal trials ranged between roughly 80 to 88%, also very close to placebo, which was around 90%. And again, bear in mind that between 58 and 68% of the patients in these clinical trials had schizophrenia, and the bulk of the others had bipolar disorder or major depression. There was no modification of their underlying regimen. These agents were just added right on top of it. In terms of specific adverse events, we do see a rate of sedation for valbenazine in the package insert of 10.9% and also we see for both agents some warning about parkinsonism now we think the rates are quite low but we are modulating presynaptic dopamine release and in some sensitive individuals we may overshoot a bit and cause parkinsonism and there's also low rates for akathisia do tetrabenazine is titrated more slowly and we see generally a different adverse effect profile with lower rates for all of those compared to valbenazine Both are very well tolerated though, and I think that's really the take-home message that when you see between 80 and 90% of subjects completing the clinical trials, when these agents are added adjunctively versus 90% on placebo, I think it allows you to tell patients these are drugs which I can add to your existing regimen and which are very well tolerated. The only thing you really have to think about, to be honest, is whether they're on a 2D6 or 3A4 inhibitor with respect to valbenazine or a 2D6 inhibitor with respect to deutetrabenazine, and that will alter your maximum dose.
0: Okay, sounds good. Those are really impressive completion rates in the studies. And can you just tell us a little bit um, or remind us about what the 2D6 and 3A4 commonly encountered uh, inhibitors are in clinical practice? Yeah, and we're
1: talking about strong inhibitors. For 2D6, the big offenders are bupropion, paroxetine, and fluoxetine. And for those agents, the maximum dose of valbenazine will be 40, and the maximum dose of deutetrabenazine will be 36. If you have people who are on a strong 3A4 inhibitor, that will also cap the maximum dose of valbenazine at 40, and those would be things like ketoconazole.
0: So it certainly sounds like these VMAT2 inhibitors are extremely effective, and one of the major challenges, at least I've experienced, is actually having a, an individual agree to take a VMAT-2 inhibitor sometimes. So I'm wondering if you have any tips for how to offer a VMAT-2 inhibitor, let's say for someone who's taken a long-acting injectable antipsychotic and they may be reluctant to take oral medicine.
1: I would try to do a bit of motivational interviewing with that person and maybe identify the fact that they're aware of these movements and how it might impact their life. Sometimes we think, oh, this person's very ill, she or he is not aware. Often they are. And I think it's important to engage them. Sometimes also there are family members or caregivers who are also motivated to have this person treated because they like to take Mary out to church or to dinner with the family, but her movements are so severe it interferes with them having her integrated into some of the activities they're doing. If you could engage them at least on the idea that I'm willing to give it a try, I think that's half the battle. And then, because we have two options, you can ask them, do you have a preference? Would you rather do a slower titration or a faster titration? Do you want to see results maybe in a different time frame? I'm willing to go either way as long as that they will agree. But I think like a lot of conversations, it's something that's worth repeating. So maybe they'll say, I'm not sure or no right now. But maybe over time, they might be willing to give it a try. if you have peer support specialists in your clinic, especially those who have taken a VMAT-2 inhibitor, sometimes they can be much more persuasive than any clinician can.
0: I think that's a great point about the peer support specialists. Absolutely. I wonder about another strategy, which is antipsychotic switching. Say you have someone taking a first-generation antipsychotic. How effective is it to switch someone to a second-generation antipsychotic in mitigating the risk of TD?
1: With the exception of clozapine, and clozapine, of course, as we know, is an exception in many ways, the evidence base suggests that dose reduction is not effective at treating TD, and neither is switching from a more or less, more potent D2 blocker to a less potent D2 blocker. So those are not evidence-based strategies, and I discourage people from switching antipsychotics just to treat tardive dyskinesia. Now, clozapine is the exception. And there is data which says if you have moderate to severe tardive dyskinesia, going to clozapine will reduce the severity of your symptoms. But because these VMAT2 inhibitors that are approved for TD are so well-tolerated, even I, who loves clozapine so much, Rob, as you know, don't suggest that you switch people to clozapine just for tardive dyskinesia. If they have another reason to go to clozapine, that's fine. Treatment-resistant schizophrenia, psychogenic polydipsia, schizophrenia, and suicidality. That's fine. You'll you'll get a 2 for one But really, don't switch, don't reduce doses, or don't discontinue antipsychotics in people who are stable on these agents just to treat their tardive dyskinesia. We really have a different way, and it's the use of the new FDA-approved VMAT-2 inhibitors, dutetrabenazine and valbenazine.
0: Yeah, and that's certainly been my experience running a clozapine program, is that since the VMAT-2 inhibitors have been available, I definitely see a lot less people refer to me Uh, for clozapine when the main issue is trying to reduce TD movements.
1: Yeah, I think we really just are very fortunate that we're able to have this conversation because we have two FDA-approved agents for the treatment of tardive dyskinesia. And really, just to to reinforce the point is that they were studied in people with severe mental illnesses like schizophrenia and well-tolerated. Yes, they're not disease-modifying, but for many people, the reduction in symptoms is significant and can really make a difference in their functional outcomes. And I think, Rob, that's really what it's
0: all about. Definitely, definitely the functional outcomes. I wanted to ask you about one more treatment that was actually outside the VMAT2 inhibitors, just so we could get a little bit more contrast. Can you tell us a little bit about amantadine and how that works and its effect on tardive dyskinesia?
1: Yeah, amandadine is a drug which we think has complex mechanisms of action. We understand it to have some dopamine agonist properties, and that's how it works for Parkinsonism. But it clearly does other things. And there were three double-blind placebo-controlled trials, which showed that it did have some positive results in people with tardive dyskinesia. But the effect sizes were quite small. And yes, it will make some people better. I think the idea is that It won't make them better enough. And to give you a point of reference, the effect size for the highest dose of valbenazine is 0.90, all right? Very large. For amantadine, it's a fraction of that. So, yes, it will make some people better, but we think that the newly approved agents are just much more effective for tardive dyskinesia management.
0: Yeah, there really aren't many compounds in psychiatry that have a 0.90 effect size. That's very impressive.
1: Yeah, and it really speaks to how effective these agents are. And again, as we talked about, the tolerability profile is such that you really can talk to patients honestly and say, you know, we can add this to what you're on. It's not going to affect your psychiatric symptoms because they had to track that in the clinical trials. It's not going to infect your mood symptoms or psychosis symptoms specifically. And hopefully they'll agree to it. I mean, that's all you can do is just offer the options, offer both options if need be, and hopefully they will see that maybe this is a way to go.
0: Well, I'm really glad we're having this conversation. The VMAT2 inhibitors are, as we've discussed today, really quite effective treatments that have a really favorable tolerability profile. Sometimes one of the challenges is actually obtaining them and going through the insurance to get them, but um, I think there are certainly very many benefits, and I've had great experience anecdotally working with them.
1: That's great. And, and I think it's just nice that we we're able to have this conversation. So I just wanted to thank you again, Rob, for having me on.
0: Terrific. Well, thanks again, Dr. Meyer. And thanks to, the, to our audience for tuning into this. We hope you have found this discussion informative for your clinical practice. And for more information on this series, please visit the show notes. Thanks again.